Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Blended. I'm joined by a brand new group of professionals who are bringing honesty and authenticity to the table. And today we're taking on our most controversial topic yet, cancel culture. It's a term that has rapidly grown over the last few years in lights of the movements like Me Too and Black Lives Matter, where people in positions of power have been found to have abused those positions without being held to account. But despite some of the positive outcomes from those movements, cancel culture remains controversial. Some critics argue that cancel culture has a negative effect on public discourse, is unproductive, does not bring real social change, causes intolerance and amounts to cyberbullying. Others argue that cancel culture promotes accountability and gives disenfranchised people a voice. And some even question whether cancel culture is an actual phenomenon at all, arguing that similar forms of boycotting have always existed. And so as we think about the rise of diversity, equity, and inclusion initiated across the workplace, it's important to overlay it with some of these wider social discussions. So we're going to dive into all of that today, pick apart the headlines from the realities, and get a feel for how the impact of cancel culture might be felt in the workplace. So welcome to Deborah, Melody, Parul, and Holly, who are going to share their experiences and advice with us today. So I appreciate you all for joining us, saying yes to be part of this um, really important discussion. So let's get started with some introductions. Can you each tell me who you are, what you do, and how you identify? Melody, I will start with you. Thank you. Hello, hello. My name is Melody Elkin, Executive Communication Consultant, and I help people effectively communicate their message in spoken word. I identify as a six-foot, two-inch, Black American Christian female. I'm a wife, stepmother, former WNBA draft pick, and love my fur babies. I love that. And thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. I know you're going to have a lot to contribute. Deborah, you're up next. Great. My name is Deborah Pollock Milgate, and I'm thrilled to be here today. I'm a partner at an AmLaw 100 law firm with a focus on intellectual property litigation and global disputes. I'm also a co-host of the Parity Podcast, a podcast designed for working women and their allies to accelerate gender parity. I have a great many identifications, so candidly, I always stumble over this question, but I am a white woman who uses she and her to describe herself, but I'm intrigued by my children's use of the pronoun they for everyone, so I continue to contemplate the pronouns. I'm a mom of three. I'm married to a man, and I'm a member of a diverse extended family I cherish. And I'll add just as a final point, I consider myself a citizen of the world, and I speak German. Wow, amazing. That was a great introduction, and welcome to the show. I, too, have an extended diverse family as well, so I can definitely resonate with that. So thanks so much for joining us. So, Parul, you're up next. Thank you so much, Sarah. I'm so happy to be here with all you wonderful ladies. Uh, as you said, my name is Parul. I am in supply chain, currently working with Yamaha Motor Canada. Outside of that, I do identify myself as a perpetual learner, and this is a wonderful platform to learn with uh, all you wonderful ladies. I am reporting live from southwestern Ontario, 
and I am of South Asian descent. I've been in Canada for about 18 years. And uh, outside of work, I do host a radio show, which covers uh, political news all around the world. Amazing. And woo woo, we've got a fellow Canadian on the show. This doesn't happen very often for me. So excited <laughs> to have you here. Thanks so much, Parul. And last but absolutely not least, you, Holly, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sarah. Hi, I'm Holly Pierce. I'm a director of logistics for a battery manufacturing firm. I've been in supply chain and logistics my whole career. Um, and what I'd like to say is I identify myself as a supply chain champion. And to me, that just means getting the message out, right? Like we need to tell people the importance of sourcing and inventory control and transportation and distribution, all the things that came about uh, in the pandemic world, right? Everyone's like, oh, that's where my toilet paper comes from. <laughs> so I it love never gets old. It never does, does it? Everyone tells me how to do my job now, too, which I love, let me tell you. But um, so I am domiciled in Richmond, Virginia, but I'm originally from New Jersey. Um, and I have a wonderful partner and we have a, a son and we have a fur baby and all the things. And I was just saying to the ladies that I would love to be able to retire in the next 10 to 15 years. That's what we should all be working towards. I really love what Deborah said about parity culture, right? Like getting getting us to the point where women are, are able to earn what they deserve so that we can plan for a future that we can actually enjoy. So, yes. Love that. That sounds good. And I'm going to have to follow in those footsteps. Thanks, Holly. Super excited that you're here with us today. So let's start, as we usually do, with a definition and some context. So what is cancel culture? Perul, I'm going to start with you on this one because I think you may have had some experiences. So, uh, Sarah, to answer this question, I would say there's a huge conversation about what was cancel culture and what is cancel culture. Okay. It was, right? I, I think yeah. it was originally meant to be calling out people to be hateful or misuse a privilege against a certain group of people, which has now turned into calling anyone out if there's a difference in opinion only because one can. You know, it's, it's gone from appreciating each other's opinion to completely calling it out and canceling, not even giving the other person a chance to say what they should be held accountable for or what they meant when they initially put it out. And of course, because this is all around social media, so once something is put out, there's absolutely no way that it will be taken off. It is just out there with that permanence. Absolutely. That is such a great point. And I've never really thought about what it used to be and what has, it has warped and turned into now. Deborah, what do you think? I love what Parul just said in terms of a definition, and I'm not going to try to improve upon that. The only thing I want to add to this discussion is that it seems to me cancel culture has become a very personal thing so that we are canceling people. And that's a bit of the concern. And I hope that we'll talk about that more today. Absolutely. And I'm going to share something about that in just a second. But Melody, you also have a very um, unique perspective on all of this, not only from your previous career, but also with your current current career and mm -hmm. how people view even speaking opportunities. So define <laughs> that from your perspective. That's exactly right. I think cancel culture has had a tendency to creates, and I'll get into this a little bit later, what's called a spiral of silence. 
Unfortunately, it puts people in a position to where those candid conversations are not happening. And I think that serves as a huge detriment for real heart change, which is what ultimately we're after, not necessarily silencing people, but change. So I'd like to, I absolutely concur with uh, the previous statements about what cancel culture has become. And I echo that as well. Right. And Holly, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah. Again, the ladies have done a great job of unpacking it. And I, I think one of the things we, we really should get into is about the, the echo chamber effect, right? It feels really good to be part of a group of people who share ideals or thoughts or um, values. And while this can be used for good things, right, it's volunteer work, helping those who are less fortunate, who don't have food, who don't have shelter, things of that nature, I think it can also kind of stray into the echo chamber world where we tend to to only surround ourselves with folks who may sound the same way and and use that as a way to justify, hey, my actions are justified because everyone else is doing the same thing. So I, I'd be interested to find out more about that and how cancel culture has kind of led to maybe a slippery slope down that way. Yeah. And I'm going to throw in a few things from a sort of a definition. I didn't look this up in an encyclopedia, but for me, part of the definition is hiding behind. Cancel culture is really hiding behind that online persona. Mm -hmm. I think that we have, right? I think it's also avoidance of hard conversations. Yes. I think cancel culture, we can define it as, you know, sort of that overarching social media movement. But then I think we can also slim it down and talk about it being the definition of human interaction right now in the fact that if somebody has decided something about you personally without giving you the opportunity to have a conversation about it, that's cancel culture as well. And so I think that there is, and Perul, I I completely agree with you. I think this is multidimensional. I think there's an overarching, there's a personal side of it, and there's so, so much to talk about because people are hiding. They're hiding. They don't want to have tough conversations. They don't even want to hear your perspective on something so that we can move a relationship forward. And I've experienced that recently as well. All right. So why has cancel culture as a movement grown so rapidly? Who wants to start on this one? I mean, I mentioned it a little bit earlier. Obviously, social media has been the driving force behind a lot of different things. Um, But I think it's also been a driving force behind cancel culture. Holly, do you want to start us off? Sure. Yeah. And I think Absolutely. There was there was an opportunity to bring transparency in certain segments of society, whether it was the entertainment industry, whether it was politics. And it was a way with the Me Too movement, as well as Black Lives Matter, as a way to bring attention to the forefront to historically unheard or discounted voices. So to me, that was a great fundamental. Yes, we should have voices. We should be able to speak about these things. They shouldn't just you shouldn't have someone go into a room with a director and then have them have the person leading them in say, be careful, right? That's the problem there, right? And so to me, I, I see initially the roots as something that was a positive. However, the ability to, as you said, hide behind, right? Or to, to just kind of have an echo chamber of thoughts where you know, you have an idea about someone, you don't validate it, you don't talk to that person, or you make an assumption about them. And then that becomes the fact. 
And that's what you transmit, whether it's through social media, whether it's through your friend group or any other um, media opportunities that you have. And that's where the the scary part is. As you said, if they don't know you, if you're not taking the time to have those one-on-one conversations or even just an email exchange back and forth or an X exchange, I don't, we can't call it Twitter anymore, an X exchange, right? (laughs) Like... If, if you're not willing to even hear the person out, it kind of puts you in the same camp, right? If you're saying someone, they can't look beyond their own viewpoint, and yet you fail to do so yourself, mm-hmm. what have you done? You, you basically just stymied any discussion. Well, and it's also, it leads into a bigger discussion about mental health, I think, too. Because when you don't give somebody the opportunity to feel heard in a certain situation, whether it's, you know, a really big situation or a small situation, um, you know, that person suffers in silence because there's a lot of times where you just don't want to open up that can of worms or maybe be vulnerable like that with somebody who's already made a decision about you. Right. Right. Melody. Yes. I think of uh, one of the reasons why it's grown so rapidly is because it gives power when you feel powerless. Mm -hmm. It is one little slice of power that we have in order to voice our opinion. But what I do love about the concept of cancel culture is that it brings intentionality to where and how you spend your time and money. Mm -hmm. I think people have become keenly aware that their money, their time is power and that they can shift it from one uh, supply source to another. And they can do that by sending a message, a very clear message. Mm -hmm. That is, that is so true, right? Everybody now understands a little bit better our power in not only knowledge, because we've always talked about knowledge being power, but also in how we spend money and it's for every generation, right? And every generation is sort of being like, well, wait a second. I don't really like how that company does this, or maybe they don't support what I support. So I'm not necessarily going to support them. I'm going to go support somebody else. And, um, you know, you're sort of taking the power back, which is really, really interesting. Perul. Yeah, no, I, I do agree with what Melody said there. And I think it has definitely become a power play. It's definitely that one leg up only because someone had the power to jump on a bandwagon or if they had a certain following to encourage or to kind of lead their fan following a certain way. I don't think there has been enough contemplation before saying something out loud. I don't think people think about, hey, should I rather report it or should I reach out to the person privately just to let them know how you felt about it? And then going back to Sarah, what you said, it's definitely affecting the mental health because Mm -hmm. I think up until a couple of years ago, if people were able to express their opinion, let's say even Twitter or X. Now for that matter, I don't think people feel encouraged or supported to even express what they feel or mean on a certain topic, because who knows if I put out a statement 10 seconds later, my account will be canceled only because something I said does not jive with all the other people who share the same platform. I could mean something differently or my opinion could have been perceived in a different manner, but I was not even given that second chance to express myself or to reiterate what I actually meant. But it's done. I'm gone. And maybe just this one time has completely tainted me for life. And I wouldn't come out and say the same thing or express my opinion a different way from now on. 
That is such a good point. I'm going to give an example. So I don't know if any of you are in Facebook groups, but oh, I yes. know you're in one of those Facebook groups where you read everything, but you're like, absolutely not. I will never comment. I will never post because like these people eviscerate other people if they say something and it's like herd mentality, like one person does it and then everybody else does it and says some sort of awful comment instead of like asking more questions to find out a little bit more about what the post actually meant or what they're trying to do or accomplish. And I know each one of you are in one of those because I'm in one of those. I mean, it's it starts so granular. And these are by towns. Right. Like these are some town conversations, city conversations, you know, Maybe or, there's or neighborhood groups. Yes. Right? Listen, yeah. I'm just here for my recipes. I don't know why everyone has to bring <laughs> drama into this mess. Like, I literally I'm like, I want my slow cooker recipes. That's all. And that's why I keep my mouth shut on one or two of the Facebook groups I'm in. <laughs> Deborah, did you want to jump in here? Yeah, I do want to jump in here. Everybody has made such great comments. It, it seems to me that a lot of what we're talking about really, in my view, is a result of our politics, where we've come to this place where we sort of paint people as good or bad. And I have really seen, especially in the United States, that manifest itself. And I think that it has affected cancel culture in a very, very bad way. Mm -hmm. And I really liked what you were saying earlier about um, cancel culture being sort of this, you know, you're you're hiding behind cancel culture because it, it robs us of nuance, right? We aren't discussing the issues with any sort of nuance and we're actually just being lazy. We're just making these snap decisions about people as either for us or against us. Mm -hmm. There's one other point though I wanna make in connection with, because you brought up Black Lives Matter and you also brought up Me Too. In my view, those are different in the sense that that was a way of airing what was going on, right? We had no idea so many women were affected by sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And it was so important that we be together with those, with people, with other women in that moment to realize what a per pervasive problem that was. Yeah. Black Lives Matter, you can say the same thing. It really gave voice to all of these things that were going on in an ongoing basis. So to me, those are the, the, there's a difference between airing the hurt that's out there and letting people know that they're in this together and we have experienced this hurt and, and cancel culture, which, well... You've, you've said it already, so I'll stop there. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, we're going to talk about the positives and the negatives, I think, as we go through this conversation, because there is a need for it. But I guess the conversation now is how far have we gone with it, right? Because like, I get a lot of people who are like, I can't believe you do this blended podcast. Like, I really don't think you should do it. Like, you need to shut this down. Because they feel like I am going to say something wrong on any one of my episodes and then I'm going to be canceled. But I, but you also can't be scared in the fact to be able to create safe spaces for dialogue and allow people to have conversations about their, their perspectives, their experiences, because that's the only way that we can learn, right? The other example that I was going to share, and I don't want to get into whether she was right or he was wrong or whoever was right and wrong, but Amber Heard. I mean, I don't know if anybody saw that Netflix special, but wow, 
Like if that would drive somebody to the ground, what they did, whether she was right or wrong, whether he was right or wrong, I'm not saying any of that, but just the social media around what happened in that trial. And that was around me too, right? Like it's unreal how far these things and we actually as human beings take these things and think that it's our playground to play with when it's somebody's thoughts, feelings, and, uh, and emotions, you know, and it, and it can drive people to really, really bad decisions. So yes, I do want to talk about the positive, but there is a lot of negative around it. And I also want to talk about like, how do we move through this? How do we support somebody who's going through something like, and God forbid, this happens, but like an Amber Heard, right? And it's not to say whether she's right or wrong. It's just to say, oh my goodness, like this got out of control, right? And so how do we support each other? How do we change the landscape of how we're talking about human beings? Because at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. So has it become a buzzword? Do we think that it's overused? Do we think that it's misunderstood? How do we bring the explanation or the connotation around cancel culture sort of back to what it was meant to be? Can we do it? I don't know. Can we do it? Melody? You know, it's interesting because even if you mentioned the word wrong, if I say something wrong, well, obviously you are going to say something wrong. Oh, I'm always going to. From yeah. someone's perspective. Yep. So, <laughs> you know, this, <laughs> this moving target of this definition of right and wrong, and it used to be a thought provoking discussion as opposed to something so polarized, like you are absolutely wrong for having this perspective, no matter right. what your explanation of it is. Mm-hmm. I do think at this point it has become a buzzword because now we're canceling. I mean, if it's, if we're being impetulant about this and saying, well, I do not like you or the way you're doing something. So now I'm going to collectively grab some people to also not like you and cancel you as well. How much time do we really want to spend Mm -hmm. taking on this type of behavior? And so, yes, I think in some instances it has become a buzzword. And one of the things that you mentioned is, is this similar to a boycott in its purest format? The boycott system, yes, is quite effective and quite interesting. And I think as we began this cancel culture, that's where it began. Now it's unraveling a bit into public judgment for nearly any, everything, anything you do. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point. You actually reminded me of something. There are a lot of people out there who do want to get groups together. Um, And if you think about it, you think about reviews, Mm. Google reviews. (laughs) I had an instance with a a business that um, I wasn't necessarily directly involved with, but they had somebody who came in and it was a misunderstanding. They did things that they shouldn't have done based on the rules And, you know, it turned into this thing and she got a whole collective of people to write a whole bunch of bad reviews. So they went from five to like 1.2 overnight. Like that decimates a company. And then that decimates not only that company, but everybody that works for that company. Why are we putting people out of business? Like, is that what we really want to be doing as a society? I don't know. But do we think about the consequences? Now we're getting into a whole thing. This is this is what makes the discussion fun. Perul, what do you think? 
No, I, I just want to go back to the Amber Heard case, uh, Sarah. And if I if I recall, I think even at the time when that whole conversation was going on, it led to more division than people yeah. coming together because it was oh. Team Amber Heard versus Team Johnny Depp. And we kept their careers completely aside in yeah. that moment, what they have done to Hollywood, what they have worked on, what mm-hmm. they stood for, completely shunned away. Mm-hmm. And we all just talked about, hey, are you on Team Amber or are you on Team Johnny? Because somehow if I say, no, I'm on Team Amber, my opinion or who I am as a person in an instant was put at the same counter level with Amber. Or if in that same moment I said Team Johnny, I'd be, you know, someone who's like, okay, Johnny. And people, if they didn't like Johnny or if what they said or what Johnny said, if they didn't like that whole argument, then of course they wouldn't like me because mm-hmm. it was a perception in the moment. I, I think what really happened there, even if we talk about, you know, cancel culture, we must remind ourselves that you're canceling a certain ideology or an opinion mm-hmm. and not the person not the business, you know, if the business is good and if they're being rated 4.5 or 5, that's because of the material or the purpose that they're selling or how they're helping the society. Mm -hmm. We're never going to be right. We're never going to be wrong because there is no such thing in this entire world. You know, Mm -hmm. if you and I like each other, chances are if we go to the cognitive science, you and I will end up agreeing with each other because there's a certain likability. Mm-hmm. Right. But if tomorrow I say something that's not OK with you, you're, of course, welcome to differ. Right. And we can still maintain the same friendship versus some other people who'd say, I cannot believe you just didn't agree with me there. OK, you know what? I don't think I can hang out with you. You know, it just completely the whole relationship goes out the window. And yeah. of course, we when we talk about celebrities, you know, it's critiquing celebrities as a means to hold them accountable for what their offenses are is different because of course they're in that power. You know, if something has been done, which is not wrong by the rule of law or by the societal levels that they've set, then that's separate. They should come out. They should put out an apology if there's enough credibility, if there's enough accountability. Mm -hmm. But until and unless something is proved, we cannot just keep canceling left, right, and center in the name of altruism, Mm -hmm. in the name of hey, yes, no, I agree with a certain community. So hence canceled or hence not canceled. We're just so quick to make those decisions. Yeah. Well, and I also wonder, like, what is the fuel beneath the fire? Like, I know we're going to be talking about, we should, we'll we'll get back to workplaces and things like that. But in that particular instance, who's fueling that media fire? Who's getting paid to fuel that media fire? Right? Holly. So I want to share something that I've, I've observed you know, I try not to take part in, you know, team so-and-so, team so-and-so, right. but I think there's a corruption of the term cancel culture in and of itself. And I see this from, if we go back to the politics of it, both sides of the aisle, oh, that's just cancel culture. So what may have been, what I think is a strong voice, an opinion that needs to be heard is now dismissed summarily because, oh, you're just cancel culturing me. So I think we may swing to that side where people are very defensive and it's almost easier to write off something and say, well, that's just cancel culture. And I think, again, we need to reclaim the power within that word or those words and to make it like impactful once again. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Deborah. 
The other thing I want to mention here, especially when you bring up Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, it's hard to get off of that. Brought it up. (laughs) No, no, I think it's really important because you also have the the gender dynamics that are so critical to this. And what often happens is that you end up the you end up in a situation where those who historically have less power are the ones who end up being damaged the most. Mm-hmm. And so if we just think about Me Too and victims of sexual abuse, when the the guy, I'll just say the guy, punches back, he punches back two or three or four or 10 times as hard in the first place. So I don't think we should have this discussion without realizing that some of our most egregious examples of cancel culture mm-hmm. are a reassertion of... I don't want to go too deep, but but I'll try. I'm mean, there a reassertion of patriarchy or you know white supremacy. So I think that's an important element to keep in mind. Well, and you you sort of go back to my point as who's fueling that fire, right? Yeah, who's behind yeah. that fire? And are we doing it to ourselves, or is there a bit of a you know another power behind that? Is there some money behind it? And sometimes I feel that we don't necessarily get the full story, but we're making, like Perul was saying, assumptions about a particular human being without getting the full story, right? Now let's bring it back to sort of the workplace, right? We've talked about the definition. We've talked about some examples of of what we've seen Um you know, with Google reviews, you know, Facebook groups, um, celebrities, like we were talking about Amber Heard and uh, Johnny Depp. But let's bring it back to the workplace. Do any of you have any examples of how you've seen this particularly happen in the workplace? And maybe it wasn't called cancel culture at the time, because I know, you know, I've been in the workforce for 25 years and I've seen it, but it was never called cancel culture. <laughs> You know, it was it was just something that you sort of dealt with as far as, you know, workplace politics. But if one person doesn't like you and there's a whole group of them, I mean, I remember for one of the businesses, there was a whole bunch of people that didn't like the people that ran the company. Well, they started this subgroup of emails. And every time something would happen, they would, you know, bitch about it. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but they would. They would email each other, email the group. And they would be like, oh, guess what so-and-so did today? Like, that's a form of cancel culture. You know, we've got to stop this gossip wheel. Colleen. So, I, I, as you said, I don't think it's been called that in the past. Mm-hmm. But the ability to, to speak up. So, for me specifically, I've worked in a lot of industrial environments, manufacturing. And there tends to be a much more informal workplace you know, you have people who are out on the floor, out on the dock, doing uh, manual labor work of that sort. And I've actually seen a gradual change, probably over the last 10 years specifically, where, you know, people recognize that it's not okay to make comments about someone's physical features, their race, their, you know, sexual orientation, all of those things. And it's been interesting to me because it, it hasn't necessarily been an outright this is the policy, you have to do this. It's been more of people just being able to voice themselves and say like, that's not cool. That's not all right. You know, it's not okay to say that, you know, to make comments about someone's physical features, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. it's just not the way it should be. And I think where we stray towards the 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 not so great part of it is, well, if someone now is not willing to speak up because of that, because they fear either retribution within the workplace, or maybe they don't want to be labeled as, 
you know, the social justice warrior, which by the way, those three words together are freaking amazing. I don't know why anyone would be like, oh, social justice warrior, that's terrible. I, why, we should all strive to be such a person, right? But I think that now people might be stepping back and not being as willing to speak about it because there are concerns about, you know, the, the ramifications after the fact. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. Melody, I mean, you work yeah. with a lot of people who are looking to speak on stage, you know, do keynotes, um, communicate better. So I'm sure you have some examples that you can kind of share with us of what you're currently seeing because of what we're seeing under the cancel culture umbrella. Mm-hmm. You know, I think one of the interesting things was part of the conversation at the top talking about those difficult conversations, the willingness to have those difficult conversations and the willingness to advocate for yourself and speak up for yourself. Mm -hmm. And I bring this up in the workplace scenario because there is a decision being made on a one-on-one communication level when you are interacting with someone who perhaps offends you in something that they say to you. Do you take that opportunity to speak up and advocate for yourself in that interpersonal communication. I find that a lot of people are not willing to do that. Mm -hmm. So then they take the step to then approach HR or to uh, have the discussion amongst colleagues. And I would encourage people to start in that one-on-one level, which is where it is absolutely most effective. When someone knows who you are, you can communicate to them why you think this type of communication is inappropriate and make the change at that level. It can be solved at that level. From a stage standpoint, Mm -hmm. what I encourage speakers to do is the same principle as a debate. The more you understand about opposing perspectives, the more persuasive and convincing you can be. So it does require you to take some responsibility to do the research and to understand a different perspective. That is the best way to be persuasive. So from stage, I encourage people, especially if it happens to be a DE&I topic, for instance, which a lot of people have fatigued of hearing and having implemented in their own workplaces, call it out. Simply acknowledge that you understand that there are two completely different perspectives. Mm -hmm. And that invites those who have a different point of view to join the conversation simply by acknowledging them and inviting the discussion to take place. Yeah, I think that's a good point. But I think you also have some people that come to you and be like, I am terrified of speaking Mm -hmm. because I'm terrified of being canceled, right? Like this is an actual fear of a lot of folks who are in not only just the workplace, but like a business environment who are being asked to speak on stage or panel discussions, you know, what if I say something quote unquote wrong? And you will. But the idea is to neutralize that fear by calling it out before they do Mm -hmm. saying, I understand that there are many different perspectives on this. This happens to be one I'm fully aware because then that awareness and being heard and understood, that's what most people want from you. But if you want to have a presence in this, that's where thick skin comes into play and you have to take the risk. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I was um, in my LinkedIn comments for one of my posts. Uh, a little while ago. And, you know, I was, I was getting some hate over something <laughs> as you do. Um, and, you know, I was very upfront and honest. And I was like, listen, I have never been not transparent about what I do and how I present things to people. 
And, you know, it, it was a discussion sort of back and forth throughout the comments. And he ended up apologizing for something in that conversation, in that moment. And it was because, you know, it was, I wasn't shutting him down. I said, listen, I respect you for your opinion. And, but this is what I've always done. This is how I'm transparent about it. And I respect how you see my brand. I respect how you see their brand. I respect how you see my brand. And I respect you for, you know, you having a different differing of opinion. And he actually came back to me and said, you know, I'm sorry, I read through everything before. And it looks like I was telling you what to do. I apologize for that. That was not my intention. And those are ways for us to be able to have these conversations. But you have to be able to be open to that. Like I've had other scenarios where I've said something wrong and they're like, I'm completely offended by this, but I don't want to talk to you. I'm not ready. Well, that's fine. You don't have to be ready, but come back when you are. You know, let's have a conversation. Let's talk this out. You know, I didn't mean to offend you. Wasn't my wasn't my intention. But you can't do anything about it or move forward from it if you actually cannot have a decent conversation about it. Sorry, Peru. Yeah, no, I was going to say, Sarah, right there. Thank you for sharing that example, by the way. But right there, I think we could all spot how different the situation could have been mm -hmm. if you hadn't said, hey, I respect you but this is what my brand means. And I'm ready to have a conversation about this whenever you are. You know, mm -hmm. you reaching out to that person and telling him that, hey, I respect your opinion, but this is what I meant. Hey, just giving it a softer attitude, you know, just mm -hmm. approaching it from a positive standpoint, completely spun it around in a different shape, you know, where the mm -hmm. person actually said, you know what, I actually went through the comment section and I understand what happened there. So mm -hmm. thank you for coming back. And they apologize too. And right away, even when you think of that story, it only leaves you with a positive impact, which otherwise could have been a completely negative out and out example, if it would be one of those he said, she said, he said, she said, mm -hmm. and argumentative and just arguing only to jump on the bandwagon and standing up, you know, for what they said in the first place. Yeah. Right? It takes I, a, I, I, sorry. It takes a lot of intentionality, though. <laughs> I'm sure. Right? Which, which like, is not easy. You could be having a horrible day. Yes. But yep. and this is what most people don't realize, because we don't give the grace to somebody having a bad day and reacting because of where they're at in that moment, in that particular day. Um, it takes all of us to come to the table intentionally and mindfully <laughs> to have that conversation or to say, no, I really can't do this today. But listen, I will come back to you tomorrow. And we all can stand in our power to be able to do that. And right. not every day can you can you have a conversation like that if you're just not in the moment, right? Right. And and that's why I think the the upcoming encouragement of DEI communities at work is such a wonderful mm -hmm. resolution because you've created a safe haven where people can share what they meant. It's a mm -hmm. safe haven where you can redefine some concepts, you know, so that people have more clarity to actually understand what diversity, equity, and inclusion actually means for. Mm -hmm. And if someone's going through a hard time, it's also one-on-one -on -one kind of area where you don't have to go out and talk about it in, in public because you could not be comfortable, right? It's mm -hmm. just, okay, let me share my thoughts with person A or person B to see what they feel. And then I can share this opinion or ideology mm -hmm. with someone else. 
Yeah. And it's also around how somebody grew up, how they grew up, the words that were used. Well, if, if I used a word for 40 years, mm -hmm. like, let's just use that as an example. I heard this word over and over again. I use this word. I'm not saying a derogatory word. Don't get, don't get me wrong. I'm talking about like, now they call it, I think the principal bedroom, right? But I grew up 40 years calling it something else, mm -hmm. which I now understand. But if I say that word by accident, because I've, I've heard it, said it, right? It's just been around me for 40 years. There has to be some sort of grace to be like, listen, man, that's not the right word to use. Let's use the new word that everybody else is using. And I'd be like, oh yeah, oh yeah. No, I totally, that was, I was just in the moment, just, you know, Melody. Yes. I'd love to give my perspective here because mm -hmm. I think it's important to realize and recognize that within cultural communities, there's disagreement. There is no decisive direction to go in within the communities that we are trying to support and advocate for. That's true. Mm -hmm. So there still even is no right and wrong within the community. Yep. There's still internal debate. So you have to give yourself grace and then even folks outside of that particular community and at least make the assumption that people are trying to trying. move in the direction. Yes. make Lead with the assumption that people are trying and have good intentions. That's I mean, that makes the world of difference. Deborah. Yeah. So the other thing that I've had some success here in having these conversations is to acknowledge I don't have the answers. I am working toward a workplace I want to be part of. I don't know how we fix things. I'm going to offer you some ideas and I'd like you to share your ideas as well. So right from the start, I am telling people I may screw up and I may be wrong. But unless we engage with each other and try to figure this out, nothing's going to change. So that's what has been work has been helpful for me. Hmm. That's a that's a a really interesting point. And I think a lot of us have to get there. But I think a lot of what we've been talking about, too, is about inner work. Like everybody has to work on themselves first. Is that not true? Like, I've just been thinking about this, this whole conversation is that there is a lot of work to be done and we can't just assume or make other people do the work when we actually need to do it on ourselves first to then be able to help others. And I think there's also a really big disconnect in all of this and where cancel culture also comes from is that not everybody's doing the work. You got 20%. And they won't, the they won't, right? right? They won't do all the work mm -hmm. unless we figure out how to bring them to the table. Yeah. Holly? I think it's very important when you're on the airplane, you have the ubiquitous, you must put your own oxygen mask on first before you help others. And it sounds so obvious, right, guys? Like, yes, I have to recognize that I have intrinsically, I have biases, unconscious or otherwise. And at least acknowledging that kind of like what Melody was saying is that, yeah, I, I, I'm, you know, I, I don't say this with intentionality to be hurtful, but I'm, I'm working to get better. 
I'm working to use. I'm not going to use the term for my shutters, right? That was another thing. Living in the South, we have these very nice painted white shutters and there's a name for them. I was like, oh, oh, yeah, I, sh I should not say that as well. But again, if we are, we want to be the change you want to see, right? So again, if I'm willing to say like, I'm not going to, I think that Deborah, you made a great point to say like, I'm fallible. I am flawed. I am human, but I'm willing to be, I'll meet you out where you're at. And if you'll meet me where I'm at, and maybe together we can move down the path forward. And there will always be people who are reluctant to do so or who are outright belligerent. And it's not our responsibility to change them. That's a big part, too. It's just to say, I'm doing the best that I can. What do I know for sure? And what can I do to help, really? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think another comment that I can attribute to cancel culture on a sort of a micro level is... Um, you know, so like as an example around pronouns, I don't understand they, them. So I'm just not even going to go there because I don't want to do or say the wrong thing. So I don't want to know. Right. Because on a micro level, that's kind of cancel culture, right? You're canceling those who who use they, them and not really putting in the effort to really figure out what it actually means. And how it relates to maybe individuals within your personal circle, maybe at work, you know, maybe just on a general level. And if you're a parent and you're speaking that truth with other people and little ears listening, I mean, that doesn't, that also doesn't help it for the next generation either. Right, Deborah? I know you've got a lot with they, them. So I didn't know if you were. I, <laughs> I know I brought that up. Um, yeah, it's, it's an issue for me because. I, I've never wanted to be first identified as a woman. Mm -hmm. And so I love the pronoun she, her, but I'm also fine with they, them. So I went to my children and asked them if I could use all of those pronouns because I'm fine with all of them. I just really don't want to be he or him. And they told me, no, I couldn't do that. You can't use all and four? No, I couldn't do it because it would be misunderstood. Oh, so I don't, right? So I don't know enough about pronouns in order to do this in a way that would be respectful to everyone. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be disrespectful, but I do think when we're all trying hard to be as respectful as possible, mm -hmm. that there should be room for us to try to experiment with that because yeah. then, right? Yeah. And make mistakes. Like there are some, yes, uh, go back to the celebrities because those are the ones that, you know, we're kind of watching. Right. And there are some that have gone to they, them, and then come back to she, her. And they're like, we're just experimenting, man. Like, leave me alone. I don't have all the answers. And that's what, that's the way it should be for everybody. Melody, you came off of mute. Yeah. I, so I've got a logical brain. So my, brain asks the question, who is the authority to tell me what is right and what is wrong? I think so it's true. a discussion. So that's why I think it really comes down to the interpersonal level. I don't know if there's an authority that's going to tell you or shape for you how these are used. It really is this interpersonal discussion and say, hey, this is what I prefer. Mm -hmm. Great. Shed some light on that for me. I'll do my best in this that you make an effort to pronounce someone's name appropriately. Mm -hmm. Even if it's difficult to do, mm -hmm. you take on that challenge and you try to do it to the best of your ability, mm -hmm. practice it perhaps if necessary, but nobody can tell you how to appropriately pronounce that name other than 
the person who's sharing it with you. And I think that's where it all starts is that interpersonal communication. I know that doesn't solve any problems for Mm -hmm. when we're speaking in front of large groups of people. But again, as long as you're making that assumption and you're making some effort to bridge the gap, I think Mm -hmm. you're in the right spot. Yeah. I also like to give them the stage to be able to introduce themselves. Indeed. Because nobody can do it better than themselves. Indeed. Right? Um, so has cancel culture affected anything that any one of you has said yes or said no to? And this might not be the right group because you all said yes to coming on this particular conversation about cancel culture. And you were all like, yes, I'm going to rock it. This is my topic. (laughs) Um, so I don't know if this is the right group, but I do want to put it out there to see if, um, anybody has not move forward with something in their life because they were afraid of cancel culture. And I can tell you, before I got into supply chain media, there was a ton of stuff that I did not want to do. I mean, I was terrified of public speaking. So, you know, I said, I said no to speaking opportunities and all sorts of things until I worked on myself (laughs) to get to the point where I could do that. And so has any of you um, said no to something because of cancel culture? Probably not, right? Parole. I, I mean, censor. You have the, you have the most. You censor, right? What? <laughs> you have I, parole. You we have, censor instead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but parole, you have the most controversial political radio show out of all of us on here. I mean, mm-hmm. what made you say yes to that without even? Did you even think about you know? What if I say the wrong thing or, and like Melody said, it's not really wrong. We need to find another word for that. Right. You know, I I love how the conversation is actually moving into something positive. You know, we're now talking about the art of being ourselves and the actual opportunity to relearn or to come over indecision. And, you know, to your question, when you say that, have you given anything a second thought where, you know, you were saying no first and then it turned into a yes because you found that courage deep down inside or strength deep down inside that no I'm still going to go out and say what I stand for or what I perceive as of this moment for that specific topic so going back to my experience as a radio host so when I first said yes to being a host I was too young I was cancel culture did not exist at the time and I had never been in the media it was just my father tapping on my shoulder saying you know I I think you'll be good at public speaking so why don't you give this a chance and I said no 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 why would you say that and he goes no I have a feeling and you know it's true I guess parents know us best so that one episode turned into 12 years now and yes every Saturday when I go on that mic I do have to find I do have to walk that fine line because if you're talking about World War II or if you're talking about what happened in the parliament, you know, if you're talking about a certain leader of a certain country and what they stand for and how it did not make sense with the other for example, G20 leaders or United Nations, of course you're always walking that fine line and it's very very hard 
you know, if you're in social media or, or a journalist, it's very hard to walk that fine line all the time because it's also exhausting, right? You forget what you stand for in that whole procedure because you're always thinking, hey, I do not want to come across negative for this community. I do not want to come across negative for that community. And I've been very, very close to someone actually making a call to CRTC only because they did not agree with what I said on the radio, mm. you know, and, and we were very, very close to being canceled only because we stated an opinion. Mm-hmm. Right. But thankfully, you know, the lawyers did arrange for a meeting between the two parties where we were able to come face to face. And mm-hmm. I was able to reiterate what I actually meant by that statement. And they understood because it in that moment, in that 10 second, it just struck a wrong chord with them. Mm-hmm. But because cancel culture did not exist at the time, I was given a second chance. But every Saturday, I still wake up that, with that feeling and I have to make notes for myself where I say, do not say this word. Mm-hmm. I would rather say that news or what my opinion is in a different format, or I'll give another example from any of the past history events that have happened to basically to state what I mean or which way I'm heading into rather than saying a, a single word, because yes, I am afraid. But then again, I have to find that strength time and again, that if something does not strike a chord with someone, I will also come out with an apology. And, you know, I've said that too, that, hey, I'm sorry if this does not sit well with you, but this is how I perceived that situation as. So I'm going to get to the apology part in a minute, but I just want to give you kudos and thank you for sharing such, um, you know, a personal story and example. Um, I know for me, that I think about it every time I write a social media post. I think about it every time I'm on a podcast, every time I'm live. I said something the other day, and I can't remember what it was on Thoughts and Coffee. And all day it stuck with me. And I was like, I wonder if somebody's going to pick up on that. And it's going to get, you know, it's going to get some hate. And not that it was a bad word or like anything like that. But I think it was like a word that I grew up with that I can't remember what the word was, but I'm constantly thinking about that too. And so I appreciate you for sharing that because sometimes we feel alone with that, especially when we're, you know, posting and we're out there all the time and think having to think about it. But I think the other part of it too, is that we have to also understand that what we're putting out there, we have to check our bias Mm -hmm. at the door before Mm -hmm. we're putting things out there. There's a lot of people out there who will just They don't really care. They're going to put it out there and that's fine for them. Um, But there are, you know, people like, like us that will think twice about, or maybe we'll write it and rewrite it and delete it and rewrite it again, (laughs) write it like eight times. Rephrase and, oh, same for sure. Sometimes I write an email and I would come back to it 10 minutes after to reread just to say, you know, hey, was, is the intention coming off the way it was meant to be in the first place? So contemplation, right? The power of contemplation. I know that sometimes it's exhausting to do that inner work, but I feel it's so important because it it just serves as a reminder, even to ourselves and our personalities to just stay at the core of who we are. Yeah. Such a great point. Deborah. you were putting up your hand. Yeah, but I think I was, (laughs) I put up my hand because even when you write it and you rewrite it, 
once you've delivered it and you've put it out there, I gave a keynote last weekend and I woke up with a huge stomach ache the next day because I don't know what I may have said and I can't script word for word. I don't know what I may have said that potentially offended someone. So at some level, we just have to live with this Mm -hmm. and keep moving. And I think it's really helpful to just recognize the stress that comes with that. Yeah. Well, and like I go back to what I said originally about mental health is that, you know, when we think when we go after somebody so quickly, we don't actually think about what they have necessarily potentially gone through. It could have been a week. It could have taken a week to think about it, rewrite it, go over it, stress about it. You know, you don't know how much effort that person has put into whatever it was. And maybe they thought it was okay. And then for somebody to come back and say that it's not, well, that's fine. But it's the way that that interaction happens. Now, Parul said something very interesting. And I want to talk about this because I want to know if we're desensitized to apologies. So cancel culture, right? Somebody comes to you and says, you've offended me, you've offended me with what you said or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And parole, you're like, I'm the first one to apologize. I would be the first one to apologize too and take the responsibility on and maybe do the work, right? Maybe read some more about something or whatever that looks like. Um, but I also think that there's a lot out there um, and people are apologizing and some people aren't even taking that apology for what it is. I had a bad day that day. I was in a really bad space. I didn't mean to do that. That was not my intention. Are we desensitized to apologies or do apologies still work? Or if they don't work, what's the alternative? I would just say that sincerity and intentionality, right? There there are times when, I mean, I've had my spouse say this to me. I'm sorry that you felt that way. That is not an apology. That is a way to get me really fired up, okay? (laughs) But if there's sincerity and it's, you know, it's an explanation of my thoughts, my emotions, my mental state at the time that this occurred, I'm much more likely to believe that and to feel and to to extend that grace. Mm. But where, where I see it now is the political spin sometimes, you know, someone comes out and they just put it out there because it's a knee-jerk reaction to apologize. And I don't know that that's as, you know, it's not as heartfelt, obviously. And it seems to be just turning aside some some negative attention. And that's where we have to kind of put on our, our thinking caps and say, okay, is this just for the PC crowd? Or is this someone who really felt like that they did something and they recognized that they were wrong? And I want to call it out. Right. Melanie? Yeah. I don't think there's any question that we all develop over time our own ethos, which essentially in terms of credibility, it's not so much letters behind your name, the things that you've done, but it is who you are and how you show up. Mm -hmm. And I think that that rings true and that that sincerity, as Holly mentioned, is really the key. And in most instances, for us, the ones who offend, that's all we can do. Mm -hmm. You don't have control over how that is received. And I want to linger on this for a moment because as a communication coach, helping people communicate their message with clarity and with confidence, all of these things are in the back of your mind and it could paralyze you from ever moving forward. 
Mm-hmm. So really you take the aggregate of everything that you've said and who you truly are. And if you are in fact, sorry about that and you apologize, you learn something from it. That's all that you can do. And your rep- your reputation will speak for itself in the long run. Yeah. And give people, give people the opportunity to be able to apologize too, right? Like we're talking about being desensitized to apologies, but I think there's also moments where we don't even give them the opportunity to potentially do that because we don't even talk to them about what's bothering and we just drop them Mm -hmm. and that's not okay either. So I think that, I think that's a really, really, really great point. One example that I'll bring up for you is uh, recently Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis around the whole um, Masterson case. And I don't know if you guys saw that or whatever, and they put out an apology video. I'm not saying it was right or wrong or whatever, but Mila looked angry when she was delivering her apology for what she had done. And so there was a lot of comments around, I don't think that that was very sincere. Does she really, you know, and so maybe she did mean it, but it was also how it came across as well, because she, she looked like she was just angry that she had to apologize. Right. And so that's another example of somebody apologizing, but not necessarily being sincere or authentic, or at least coming across that way. And I don't think we should cancel her for doing that. But I also think somebody in a circle needs to say, hey, man, (laughs) you know, it didn't come across how you probably wanted it to come across. You might want to rethink it or try again or or whatever that looks like. And hopefully somebody did. But that was just a a recent example that I wanted to share. Deborah? That goes back to, I think, what Holly was saying to begin with, which is it's important to distinguish between a real apology and one that isn't apology. An apology that focuses on someone's perception of what you said rather than taking responsibility for the way you made someone feel isn't really an apology. And the real apologies that say something like, I made you feel this way and that was not my intention. I am taking responsibility for my actions and the fact that I made you feel a way that was unpleasant. And I don't think we can have too many of those apologies. I think those apologies are few and far between. Yeah. Pearl? I think right away you can tell if something is well-intentioned and meaningful Mm -hmm. versus not. And I, I think this also gives way to another point where we're so quick to talk about cancel culture, but not as quick to talk about problematic actions that come out of it, right? Okay. Now, this this action as an apology where we could see that maybe she's undergoing something and it did not seem as organic as it should have been seen, because when you're apologizing, then of course you can tell that it's organic and the person actually feels for it. But if you could tell that she was maybe undergoing something or the stress of a different thought process, or maybe behind the scenes, someone had told her that, hey, if you do not apologize, then it could actually hurt your brand. Mm -hmm. Or it could actually withdraw all the support that you have for all the other social work that you are doing in this society and community. Mm -hmm. So just apologize for this moment and everything will be okay. So I think it's also important to address those emotions because we don't. It just stops at cancel culture and what's right or wrong, but we don't 
reflect on the gray areas where we actually need to do more work. Because I think the more we address those and the more we replace the word calling out with addressing actions, I think it just puts a softer focus on it and it just lets the person come forward with what they actually felt versus what they should be feeling. You made a great point. It's less aggressive. I think a lot of when we think about cancel culture is kind of that aggressiveness of like pouncing on somebody, right? Right. If someone tells me, hey, I'm going to call you out on that versus, hey, I think I was hurt by that comment. I do want to address it. Mm -hmm. Right away, there's such a different sort of emotion between the two statements. And for sure, the second statement will just let me be vulnerable in that situation and actually talk to them and tell them what was actually on my mind versus when they tell me, I'm going to call you out and I'll be like, hey, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean it that way. You know what? Let me just step away. I just, I was not thinking straight in that Mm -hmm. moment and I will completely block myself off. Well, and that calling out is kind of like a threat, right? I'm going to call you out publicly. Like, what are we doing? You know? Like mm-hmm. I've, I've had some people and, and I've had some instances where some people have said to me, you know, why don't you call them out publicly? And I'm like, but why would I do that? It doesn't serve anybody any good. It doesn't serve the community any good. doesn't serve them any good. doesn't serve me any good. I am, I am going to do what I can to, you know, get the situation to where hopefully it's going to be sort of a win-win for everybody. But I'm not necessarily going to air our dirty laundry out on social media because it's just not something that I would do or or that I want to do. And, you know, they were like, okay, well, that's that's who you are, right? Like that's the that's how you're perceived in the community. And and it doesn't surprise me that you would do it that way. So it goes back to what Melody and I think Deborah was saying is, you know, People can see who you are. They can see your actions. If you try to be somebody that you're not, it's not going to go over very well. But if you build up that credibility being the person that you are, then hopefully you'll be able to transcend or move through something like a cancel culture for something that you've said or done or whatever. But you have to build up that credibility and the respect. Right, Melody? Well, let's not forget that instigating is entertaining. You know, what? but this is what I'm saying. Who's driving it, right? It's the media. Who's paying for it? Like, I want to see a good fight, right? So, of course, I'm going <laughs> to encourage you to <laughs> entertain me. That is that is so true. I mean, maybe we need to maybe we need to do an episode or rethink what we think of as entertainment. Entertainment. But, <laughs> I mean, you know, Real Housewives. I mean, it's kind of all over TV. Absolutely, it's a conscious <laughs> lack of empathy, right? Mm-hmm. Like people choose not to be empathetic. They don't yeah. want to hear. They don't want to empathize. They don't want to put themselves in your shoes. They just want to stand to the side and judge. Yeah. It's true. So are there any thoughts on um, if cancel culture is sort of happening in the workplace, anything that the company itself could do? I mean, we've talked a lot about what individuals can do for themselves and in the moment or having safe spaces, having conversations, allowing somebody to be be able to have a conversation with you about it. But is there anything from an organizational standpoint as far as like company culture, workplace culture? 
um, if they do realize that obviously there's toxicity, there could be some cancel cancel culture happening. Is there anything the leaders of an organization could do to, you know, try to make sure that it's not happening? Deborah? I think there's a lot a corporation can do. I was hoping you wouldn't call on me first yeah. because I feel like this is a whole podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, is it about policy? Like, is it about like, what, what do we do? It's, it's, it's the, it starts at the top. So if you have respectful communications that stretch from the top of the organization over and over and over again, you very much emulate exactly the culture you want to have. So it, in my view, the culture is it, the culture of a corporate of a corporation is so important. And in some ways, it's actually not that hard mm-hmm. because it's really you you just you set how you want the communication to come from the very top, and it really does trickle down. That's that's my short answer to that question. But no, I think it's good. And I think a lot of times we put the onus on HR. And it's not just an HR problem, right? It's no, a not at all. Problem. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, and are we sitting there waiting for the fights to happen, or are we making sure? That, and then, you know, getting out our popcorn, or are we actually, you know, doing something about it before it gets there? Perule, what do you think? I am lucky enough to work within an organization that actually has been chosen to uh, be one of the greatest employers in Ontario. And I can positively say that how powerful it is to have A, one-on-ones, B, to have an open suggestion box that could be anonymous, and C, the power of surveys that does not have to have your name attached to it. Mm. We, the the company, and of course, HR um, becomes the the keeper of all these surveys, but time and again, almost every quarter, there are surveys released where it talks about employee engagement. Mm-hmm. If there's anything that you would like to see differently, or if there's an example that you've come across in the recent past that is not okay for you. And just based on those three actions, I feel the company has created such an inclusive culture mm-hmm. and making it comfortable for anyone to talk about what they felt to HR, to their leader, or to just write it out and post it in a suggestion box. Hmm. It's it's just the old school tactics. Sometimes I feel that we're in this rush of creating an open culture, but sometimes it's the old school tactics that do work because if I'm asked for my opinion, if, if they tell me we won't attach your name to that, I would for sure be very organic to what I felt versus if someone tells me that I'm going to put out that statement and we'll have your name attached to it. How would you feel? Mm-hmm. I, I will definitely filter out some pieces of information, which could be critical to the matter. Mm-hmm. Right? So yeah. I think that I, I for sure agree with the statement that it's not HR, but it is the leadership. Definitely the onus is on the leadership. It really comes down to how they perceive the whole organization as how comfortable do they want every single employee to feel? But that's also cancel culture too, right? We want you to give your honest opinion, but we want to put your name on it and we're going to share it with everybody so they can see it. I mean, you're, <laughs> you're right. You're right. So another thing that happened in the company is that it's not it's not all 100 or 200 employees can share their opinions. You also have those little departments. So if this is a department of four people, Mm -hmm. where an anonymous suggestion or 
an instance, a negative instance has come out, then it's between the four people and we know that something's going on in that team. Right. So you're you're stripping off the layers slowly, yeah. right? You're also Good making point. it safe and you're stripping off the layers to know exactly where the issue lies or mm -hmm. what needs to be corrected. Yeah. And you're not calling people out. Right. You're addressing mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Right. You're, you're, you're addressing, addressing it. You're investing yep. in it. Yeah, absolutely. I love those suggestions. Thank you. Holly or Melody. And then uh, we're going to go to our final question. Yeah, I, I think the the point is well taken. That is not just human resources. It's also not just from the C-suite down. True. And if you're able to inculcate that into your, um, you know, the values and the mission statement and what, you know, the actual day-to-day -day operations, it becomes, as Peru mentioned, more organic. You're able to have those conversations in a manner that's productive and it's not perceived to be defensive as much. Um, and then also it, it entices you to attract talent, to retain talent. And, and how many times do you hear people who had a terrible experience, they either went to human resources and it wasn't well received, or they didn't even say anything to anyone, they just dipped. They found another job and they just dipped out and then it becomes someone else's problem. Mm -hmm. And so having an open forum with which to share your experiences and, and solutions, right? If there are solutions to be had, is very important. I love that. And you use the word inculcate. What do, I've never heard that word before. It means to imbue. That's another fun word. To kind of like steep, to, to kind of make inherent within a, a organism. I love that. Thank you. I learn something every time I do these episodes. I mean, I've learned a lot today. Don't get me wrong. But I've learned two new words that I can use. Melanie. Yeah. One of the nice things within my organization is that we as individual coaches are encouraged to work with clients that we want to work with. So in other words, I don't have to help craft a speech that goes against my core values. Hmm. And having that freedom and flexibility is quite nice. That way there's no conflict uh, and I can do my job to the best of my abilities. So that has been openly communicated in our workplace, which really allows you to work deeply with the clients that are in alignment with what you would feel good uh, participating in. I love that. That's such a good um, example as well that you've shared in the fact that they've actually been intentional as to the service that you're going to provide and who you want to work with. Mm -hmm. And right? those outcomes, yes, important outcomes. So, yeah, Well, and it drives the successful outcomes mm -hmm. of what you want to see, not only in your career and how you impact and help other people, but it's also uh, beneficial to your client as well. I love mm -hmm. that. All right. So the final question of the day, what is one piece of advice that you would like anybody listening to this particular episode to walk away thinking about or maybe putting into action? Um, and yeah, we're going to share that right now before we go. And you're all avoiding my eye contact right now. So <laughs> I'm going to ask Parul. <laughs> right on. <laughs> okay, uh, not just one, but I think uh, quite a few takeaways. The very first one being that we need to redefine cancel culture and replace it with accountability. Mm -hmm. I think another takeaway is problematic actions, they do deserve to be called out. But if we put them in the light of being addressed and less aggressive, it's 
you're, you're encouraging a community and generations to be able to share what they can in a very open and organic, ma organic manner. And let's make this a world of second chances. I think everyone deserves to have a second chance. Everyone deserves to come out with a reiteration so long it's well-intentioned and meaningful and you're not out to get somebody. So I'm all for second chances. Thank you for that, Perul. Holly. So I'd say one of the key takeaways is that in an effort to avoid hiding behind the mouse or the screen, it's really important to bridge the gap, have open communication, talk to people who you don't necessarily agree with. It's really hard to have hate in your heart or animosity towards a, a group of a random group of people if you know someone from that group, whether it be a certain culture, background, um, generation. It's really hard to be a jerk to them when you know that, like, you know, Bob next door, oh man, he's such a great guy. We don't agree on 90% of politics, but you know what? I, I I see him for being a human being. And to humanize that interaction rather than being able to dispel it and just say, Oh no, cancel, done. I think again, making sure we take the time to get to know one another on a human level as opposed to kind of casting aspersions. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Melody. My advice is to focus on the desired outcome. If we truly want to build bridges, we need to see inclusion as openness of all perspectives and ideas and silencing individuals does not change their mind and it does not change their heart. So we have to have those conversations and focus on the end game. And then all of the tactics that we use prior to that will get us there. Mm, I love that. Last but absolutely not least, Deborah. My biggest takeaway from today is that even though there are drawbacks to having more communications, and we know that communications can be fraught because of the strong feelings we bring into this conversation, that more speech is better. That was a Brandeis belief. Uh, so I come from the legal perspective. We have to have more speech on these issues and the conversations we have should involve everyone. Yeah. And if somebody comes to you and is and is vulnerable and they're like, you know, I'm kind of feeling this way and getting this sort of vibe from you, you know, bring it on with open arms, right? Have an open discussion instead of closing that door and being closed to some sort of feedback or conversation to see how we can improve a relationship and move it forward. So cancel culture is undeniably complicated concept. And whilst it can be seen as a threat, there is something to be said for holding people to account. In the pursuit of alternatives and improvements to cancel culture, critical multiculturalism professor Anita Bright proposed calling in rather than calling out in order to focus on accountability, but in a more humane, humble, and bridge-building way. And clinical counselor Anna Richards, who specializes in conflict mediation, says that learning to analyze our own motivations when offering criticism helps call out culture work productively. So as always on Blended, I'd like to thank, I'd like 
everyone to go away thinking about empathy and about giving each other grace without judgment. Think about ways we can learn, grow, and always strive to do better for ourselves and for each other. Remember, you can reach out to me or any of the guests on social media if you have anything you'd like to add to what we've talked about today. And remember to join us again next time on Blended when we'll be talking on more sometimes tricky conversations around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Thank you so much to Perule, Holly, Deborah, and Melody for joining me. It takes a lot of courage and bravery to be part of these discussions. And I want to honor that for each and every one of you. And thank you for saying yes for coming on the show today. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you, ladies. Thank you. Very nice to meet you all.